Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. So today we pick it up in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to learn about a church called Sardis. And so what we've been doing is reading collectively out loud. And so today you seem a little, little, little dead, but, but I'm, I'm praying by the Holy Spirit that you, that you come alive when we read together. And, and so there's a promise that you'll be blessed if you, read, if you read these words. And so I want to read, I want us to read aloud, and I want us to read with some strength and with some might. And so, fellas, that, that means that you got to read loud. There are no hard words today. Okay, if you've been here, there were some hard words in these previous letters that we had to work out, the syllables and all that kind of stuff, pronunciation before, but today it's just pretty straightforward. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward. If not, we're all in trouble. Um, so we're going to read on the count of three. Fellas, I, ne- I need your help. All right, so, so, so ready? Read. Oh, give me some strength. And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father. Let's go big on the last verse. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you today for your just mercy, for your presence. Among us, Lord, uh, we, we pray that today you would do something transformative in our congregation. Lord, Lord, change our lives today. Um, my prayer today is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we will be made more like you today. And so, Father, make us spiritually sensitive today. That, that we would be able to properly and rightly apply what we learn and what we read and what we study today to our own lives and so, Father, we just thank, we, we thank you today for this opportunity that we get to just read, study, and grow in your word today. Father, I pray that you would just make us more alive. To the, to the unbelieving person that may be here today, God, we pray that they will come in relationship with you today through your son, Jesus. And, and for, the, for the saint that may be struggling, Lord, I pray that you would, you would make us so alive today that, that our lives are radically changed. And so, Father, we pray your son Jesus would be known today above all things. We pray for strength to, to hear, to read, and to be doers of your word today. We pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name. And the people of God said amen. amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series, Taking Back the Church, my sermon title today is Reputation versus Reality. Reputation versus reality. In 2004, the, the year I graduated from the University of Central Florida, one of, one of the biggest films of the year was the movie Troy, which is a film that is loosely based and is a screen adaptation of the famous book and literary masterpiece, Homer's Iliad. The film is about a so-called Trojan War that takes place. The film stars a young Brad Pitt. Remember when Brad Pitt was a thing? A young Brad Pitt who plays the role of Achilles, who's a warrior slash god of some sorts. And it also stars uh, a younger Brian Cox. You may know Brian Cox from... The series Succession, God, God uh, hopefully you don't watch Succession. Now, but, but he is King Agamemnon, who is the king of, of Greece. Well, the story is about this attempt to take over the city of Troy. King Agamemnon has a brother who's also a king, a lower king. He's the king of Sparta. 
an area called Sparta, who his name is Menelaus, and he wants to broker a peace treaty uh, with Troy. Troy is off on an island right on a beach, and Troy is this impossible to penetrate uh, fortress of a city. Uh, and, and so he, they want to broker a, a peace treaty. And so King Menelaus, who is the brother of King Agamemnon, it, uh, he, he uh, brokers a peace treaty with the two, two princes of Troy. Uh, their, father is, their father is King Priam of Troy. But the two sons go and try to broker this, this peace treaty. Well, while they're brokering a peace treaty, the younger brother has his eyes on King Menelaus' wife. And so he's not just brokering a peace treaty. He's trying to take this man's wife. And lo and behold, before they leave, he sneaks out to everyone's surprise with the wife of King Menelaus. Well, Menelaus doesn't just want his wife to be taken. And so once he gets back, he realizes his wife is gone. He can't find her. So he goes to his older brother, King Agamemnon, and he says, hey, we, we got to go to war with Troy because they've stolen my wife. And it's one of those situations where King Agamemnon is hungry for power. That's all he really wanted in the beginning with. All he wanted was a reason to go to Troy. All he wanted was a reason to go and approach and take over Troy. You ever have beef with somebody, but you guys hadn't really got it in yet, but somebody tells you something about him, and you like, all I wanted was a reason. All I needed was one small reason to, 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 to just go in on him, right? And this is the situation with King Agamemnon. He's just been waiting for a reason to go to war with Troy, but he never had a reason to do so. But now at the behest of his younger brother and his brother's powerful and persuasive plea, he decides to do the impossible and rally the troops and storm the city of Troy, not because of his brother's wife. He doesn't care about that, but really he just wants to be the king of the agency he wants to be the king of the sea and he will do that if he takes over troy here's a problem here's a problem here's a plot the plot thick is the problem is is that troy sits up on a high hill the walls of troy are high and the walls of troy have never been breached before Troy actually believes that the gods have been protecting them from, from being breached, but, but the reality is it, it's all about location, location, location. Anybody that knows anything about war, if you study war, you know that, that whoever uh, sits or occupies the high place has the advantage. And so even with 50,000 soldiers, which is double the size of the soldiers of Troy, the, with multiple attempts... Greek, the Greek army can't seem to penetrate Troy and break through. Every time they attack Troy, because Troy's in the high place, they just put the soldiers on the roof and they shoot arrows from the roof and the arrows come raining down on the soldiers of Greece and they kill them off and they just are stuck at a stalemate. They cannot penetrate Troy no matter how hard they try. And every time they tried and they couldn't conquer, it fed into the belief that conquering Troy was impossible. It fed into the overconfidence and the arrogance of the Trojan army, specifically King Priam of Troy. So much so that, that, that if at his son, the, the older son, is trying to convince the dad, hey man, we, we're not as safe as you, you think we are here in Troy. We, we probably need to strengthen our defenses. We, we don't really want to go to war because we're not as safe as we think we are. And, the, and, and King Priam says this, he says, enemies have been attacking us for centuries. And our walls still stand. Well, if you watch the movie, one day one of the Greek soldiers comes up with a brilliant plan to infiltrate Troy. Comes up with a brilliant plan. The Greek army, seemingly in defeat, leaves the beachhead right where Troy is located. They just seem to leave in defeat one day. But they left something. They left this horse probably about 50 to 60 feet in the air, they left this huge horse that they had built right there on the beach. And so the king of Troy and his guys come out and they're like, wow, what do we have here? This, this, this big horse. And the youngest son who's got him in all of this mess in the first place says, we probably should burn this horse. We, we probably should, should burn this horse right here, just, just burn it up right here on the beach. 
And we don't get to see the father's response to his youngest son, but once the next scene comes, what we see is that the people of Troy are parading this humongous horse right into the city of Troy, and they're celebrating and praising the gods that they now have this large horse who they believe was sent to them by the gods and the lore of what this big shiny thing could do for them convinced them to bring this what we now know as a Trojan horse right into the walls of Troy and the next scene we see is in the dead of night the horse starts coming apart panels start falling on the horse and all we see are Greek soldiers getting out of the horse and infiltrating the city of Troy, killing their soldiers right in the dead of night while they have their guards down. And them letting this Trojan horse into their walls because they had their guards down led to the destruction of the city of Troy. After having a reputation for being impenetrable from attack, the appeal of something alluring that they thought would benefit them led them to let their guards down and be destroyed, and their reputation no longer matched their reality. They were in more danger than they ever knew. One of the coldest lines in the movie was when the king, Ag Agamemnon, found out the guy, the soldier who came up with the idea, and he walks up to him and says, you have found a way to make the sheep invite the wolves for dinner. This story is not much different than what happened in Sardis. Sardis was also known as a city. They were this wealthy and prestigious city. They were at one point the capital of the Lydian kingdom. And, and legend has it they were so wealthy that coinage was actually created in Sardis, meaning that if you have a coin that is part of the economy, they, they actually created coin, uh, coins as a part of an economy. They, they had an incredible reputation. They were a prideful people, but what set them apart, like we said about the church at Pergamum, was that they had an Acropolis. They had an Acropolis that was elevated 1,500 feet in the sky. There's a picture that we have that we want to show you. They, they had this, 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 Acropolis that you see off in the distance. This is where Sardis is located, right at the top of that hill. They, they have a reputation for being alive. No, nobody can approach Sardis. Nobody could get up there and, and take them down. Nothing could happen to them. Their Acropolis was said to be impregnable. They, they, nobody could get there. No outside forces could actually ever attack them. They were confident and secure. And secure. But here's the reality. <laughs> Historically, to their shame and humilia humiliation, their, their impregnable wall was penetrated twice by sneak attacks from outside forces. They, they were attacked at the very place that they assumed that they were strong. They, they were so confident that even in this place, they placed no guardrails. They, they, they left this area unguarded. They were unwatchful and presumed that they were just good. They were overconfident and boastful. But can I tell you something? Their carelessness and overconfidence led to the destruction of their city. Because of carelessness, apathy, lethargy, a city that once had a reputation for being alive is now dead. And their reputation no longer match their reality. And Jesus is now saying the same thing has happened to the church at Sardis. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. He says to the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. This is how it's describing Jesus. Seven spirits doesn't mean that God has seven spirits. Seven spirits just means that it is the completeness, the fullness of the one Holy Spirit, that, that Jesus is the fullness. Number seven, Jesus is the fullness, the completeness of the spirit. And he has the seven stars with the seven angels that are representative of the church or protectors of the seven churches. And the one who sees and knows all things, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation 
For being alive, you got a lot of stuff on your calendar. Y'all got a lot going on. Y'all got a lot of activities that are happening. Your ministry is booming. You have a reputation for being alive. People go on the website. They see all kinds of stuff. They see stuff happening on social media. They see stuff on the church calendar. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. He sees right past the veneer and says, I know the real you. They had a high perception of themselves and probably thought that they were actually doing well spiritually. But but he's telling them, you you actually have somewhat of a false sense of security. And it seems that the majority of the people of the church at Sardis are spiritually uh, comatose. They, They are actually near death. They were doing a lot of activities and religious stuff in the name of the Lord they, they, they believed they were alive because of the stuff that they were doing, which was good, but it was meaningless apart from a godly witness. They had a name for being alive, but by the way they actually lived Monday through Saturday, they were dead. And I want to give you this in case your math ain't mathing. Religious activity does not equal spiritual aliveness. Religious activeness does not equal spiritual aliveness. Just because you do stuff for God does not mean that you're spiritually alive. One one, one theologian said it this way. He quoted like this. He said, outwardly, this is how he describes Sardis, outwardly they were prosperous, busy with externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. Here's what he's saying in a nutshell. They were just nominal Christians. They just were just nominal Christians, just doing the bare minimum, just to say that they were Christians. And essentially, he's saying they were Christians in name only. They they had no real devotion to God. They had no real prayer life. They really got no serious enjoyment out of reading the word of God. They they drove the church. They came to church, but they complained all the way there. Yeah, they served in church, but they complained about it all week and thought about how it's such an inconvenience, and they would like to sleep in on Saturdays. This is really what they really were. They didn't have a joy of the Lord coming and emanating from their spirit. If not, they would have been alive, but he says that they're dead, but they were confused thinking that they were alive because they were doing stuff. Yeah, 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 they came to church. You know, they came once a month, twice a month, which is what Christians are doing these days on average, which is cultural Christianity, which is actually nominal Christianity. They came once or twice a month whenever it was convenient for them. Yeah, they gave a little, but they never really gave anything sacrificially or consistently. And even when they did, they did it based off of however my budget is looking this week and whatever my finances can tell me that I can do, this is what I do, but I'm not putting the Lord first. Yeah, yeah, they served in church. But they complained about the people that they had to serve. They weren't alive. They were, they were dead. They, they did stuff for God, but through the rest of the week, they lived just like everybody else. They, they were living below the standard that God redeemed them to. That, that's the epitome of nominal Christianity. And you may say, well, what's wrong with nominal Christianity? Isn't this thing just all about forgiveness and I just do what I want to do and do a couple stuff, couple things for God and maybe, maybe give every now and then or serve every now and then and show up to church once or twice a month? What's, what's wrong with that? I am forgiven, right? The problem with nominal Christianity is that it gives the appearance of vitality, but it actually prevents real life from ever coming forth. People get comfortable. You can't grow just doing the bare minimum trying to get by. You can't grow in your faith like that. And so really what it is is that they were holding a form of godliness but denying the power. Nominal Christianity. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead because they were just doing enough to get by to be Christian in name only. But you can't grow that way, saints. You know what I learned about working out? If you, shut up. <laughs> Don't judge me. Is that when you first start, you lift and you run a little bit, you're a little sore. You might lose a couple pounds. Might see a little, fellas, you might see a little muscle come in. 
little tone going on. You're getting your bench press on, right? You're doing a little something, something. But research shows that if you continue to do the same exercises with the same weights, doing the same reps, your body adjusts to this and growth no longer takes place. So what you have to do in order to grow is do something that you're not comfortable doing. You have to actually get outside of the norm in order to stimulate your muscles so that they can expand and grow. But if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you will never see the true growth that can come forth because you're not willing to be uncomfortable. But what would you learn about these people in the gym? Most of these people didn't start out loving to work out. Nobody starts out loving to go to the gym. Have you realized how inconvenient it is to go to the gym, especially after you've been spending a day at work? Nobody wants to eat right. You got to be rich to eat right these days. You got a meal prep and plan and you count calories. and You got a calorie counting calculator. Nobody wants to do that. That's uncomfortable. But what I think happens is once you get used to it over time and you endure the pain long enough and the uncomfortable long enough and you embrace the suck long enough, you know what happens? What you once hated, you start to love and you start to get addicted to and you look at yourself, you know, I got to keep on going because I like the way that I'm looking and I thank God that I put it in on the front end. I'm glad that I didn't give up when I didn't see any gains, but I kept making myself uncomfortable and now what made me uncomfortable actually now makes me comfortable. I like to grow. Okay, I know I might be uncomfortable and I know I might be in pain for a season and I know it might feel like suffering, but I know this is working something out in me and God is doing something in me and if I just wait long enough, I will see fruit come to bear from my life. But you never get there having a reputation of being a Christian and just being a Christian in name only. You know, the problem is not just their indifference. The problem, the greater problem is their presumption that everything is okay. Presuming that just because they were Christian in name that they're secure. The pastor told me it's all about the grace of God. It's all about the grace. So no matter what I do, that the, he can't take his salvation back from me. That, that, that I'm secure in Christ. That I'm forgiven. That, that it, even if I go out and do the craziest stuff on a regular basis and violate the scriptures and disobey God my entire life. If I just ask for forgiveness and, and just say, I plead the blood of Jesus, then, then, then everything's good. But really what you're doing is allowing Satan to lull you to sleep. You see, I, I think the church at Sardis, because they lived in this pagan culture, they, they really weren't excited anymore about spiritual stuff, but they were excited about the worldly stuff. They were excited and alive about the weekends and, and, and getting drunk and, and, and sleeping around with people that they weren't married to. But, but when it came to the things of the Lord, they found it boring and apathetic and hard and inconvenient. I, I, uh, it's Sunday morning. I'm tired. I don't, I'll catch them next time. Oh, I, praying, I guess I'm going to pray on the way over here and ask for the Lord's forgiveness in advance but I know what I'm going to do, but that's okay because I'm a nominal Christian and I'm going to go to heaven. I, I, I know what I'll do. I'll just go serve. I'll, I'll, I'll serve. I'll serve this Sunday and that'll wash all the ratchicity off my week. They went through the motions of spiritual activities, but it was out of duty and not love for God. The things of God just, just weren't as exciting as sin. Sin got the blood flowing. But they were being lulled to sleep by Satan. Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. He also says, watch yourself. Meaning, watch your spiritual life unless your heart be weighed down with drunkenness in the cares of this life. 
He says, don't live for the weekend. Don't live for the world. Taking on the world's view of your life and then saying that you're a Christian. It's not Christianity. We have not been called to be and cannot be a Christian in name and reputation only because that's not Christianity at all. If that is how you live, you are spiritually dead. You know, he he doesn't even name what makes them dead. But I assume that based on the surrounding culture, it was probably idolatry and some sort of compromise to do what the culture was doing. But let me tell you something. You are not, if you are in Christ, I want to let you know you're not dead. You've been made alive. I'm going to read a couple scriptures to you and I want you to get the theme. Here's what Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 6. Please hear this. Take notes. Write this down. Put it in your phone. Put it in your Bible. You need this. Here's what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you were, this is prior to you being saved, and you were dead in your trespasses in sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. You're not alive and in sin at the same time. It's not possible. In which you previously, before Christianity, you walked according to the ways of the world, according to the rule of the power of the air, meaning Satan, the Satan, the spirit not working in the disobedient. We do all, every Christian, all of us, previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. That's what we used to do. We were by nature children under wrath as others were also, but God. The two most powerful words in scriptures, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he made for us. Guess what he did? He made us alive. You're not dead, saints. You're alive with Christ, even though you were once dead in your trespasses. You are saved by grace. And he also didn't just make us alive. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens of Christ Jesus. You share inheritance with Christ. He also said to the church of Rome, Romans 6 and 11, here's what he said. Paul says this. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul also said to the church at, at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For just as Adam and Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Do you get the picture? If you are saved, that means that you are alive. You are not dead. You should have spiritual vitality. There should be joy emanating from your heart in spite of your circumstances. You should have a love that's coming from your heart, a love for God and a love for people, a love to serve them coming from your heart. It shouldn't be duty. It should be out of love. You know what Jesus says to the religious people in his day who were being Christian or not Christian, but godly in name only doing religious activities? Hear these stark words of Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. What do they put in tombs? Dead bodies, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity, all kinds of ratchetness. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Let that not be our portion. You know what Jesus observed about the Pharisees and the scribes? They said they had a relationship with God. They claimed to be sons and daughters of the the Lord, sons of God. But they didn't have the fruit of a transformed life. Genuine faith is seen in a life that matches the character of God. That's what happens when you're in relationship with God. You're not perfect, but you progressively look more like Christ. 
you're never comfortable with just being nominal. And, and what, what's the sad reality is, is that in our culture, we don't believe in being nominal in our careers. We don't believe in being nominal in our educational pursuits. We don't believe in being nominal in our appearance. We, we, go, we, we go hard in every other area of life. We look for every opportunity to grow in every area of life. You, you, you dare you be nominal in your finances. You watching every YouTube video that you can watch about doing your budget. But for some reason, when it comes to your spiritual life, average is a-okay. You got it upside down. That doesn't become, that doesn't become optimal, those things, until you get the spiritual right part right first. Do you know that aligning yourself with the things in the will of God sets the rest of your life in order? It puts your life in the right priority, but when you don't, to use a proverbial phrase, you put the cart before the horse. I'm going to ask a question. It's not a trick question. It's not multiple choice. I'm not trying to trick you. This is a simple question. Please help, help, help me, God. Have you ever seen a cart, a carriage, dragging the horse? If you have, you have it. <laughs> you always see the horse pulling the cart. But what we do is we put those things first. Our relationship, our finances, our family, our children, our education, our career. We're, we're putting the cart first, trying to drag a horse. And then wonder why the struggle is so real and you seem stuck. But maybe if you put things in its proper order and let Jesus be the driver completely solely without your help, maybe the rest of your life gets in order. Maybe my finances, my relationship, my career, my education, all those things, my family life falls in line because I put my priorities in the right place. So here's what he says. If you are a Christian and you are spiritually dead, you need to remember and retain your actual reality. Be alert. Strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before God. Remember then. What you receive and heard, keep it and repent. And he's basically telling them, wake up. You are in more trouble than you even know. You, you are on spiritual life support. He says, I have not found your works to be complete before my God. What he's saying is apart, your activity apart from spiritual vitality, apart from life with God means nothing. You are dead. Your works don't even matter to God because it's not rooted in love. It's not rooted in life with God. They, they, they knew how to do the work but they gave less consideration to the way they lived. You've not availed yourself to God to let him work out the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You fail to live up to your confession of faith and what you say you believe. You're spiritually just going through the motions. Let me tell you something. Spiritual apathy is a short distance from apostasy. What is apostasy? I'll define that. It just means falling away from the faith. And if you fall away from the faith, you never had the faith to begin with. Spiritual apathy is a short distance to apostasy. And many of us are just being lulled right on to sleep by Satan, just being good enough, being nominal, just doing the things but not even making an attempt in the power of the Spirit to live the life. If somebody asks you, do you believe the Bible is true? Absolutely, I believe the Bible is true. I believe what Jesus said is true? Absolutely, you can't convince me otherwise. I believe what he said is right. Here's what the Lord's brother said. This is what Jesus' brother said. <clears throat> Jesus' older brother's name is James. Here's what James says, his book, James 1. Verse 22 through 25, here's what James says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and is not a doer, meaning don't live it out, he is like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. I think this is what Jesus is calling him to. What God calls us to is authenticity, not duplicity. There shouldn't be a save you and an unsave you. We should lean on the grace of God enough to try to become that one person. That, that private me looks as close as possible as I can in the power of the Spirit to look like the public me. And he's calling them the spiritual revival. You are alive. Cultivate what brings life in you. Retain, remember, retain, remember how you became a Christian in the first place. Remember the gospel that was preached to you and that you received. The gospel salvation that Christ came and died on the cross for your sins, was raised for your transgressions, that his resurrection was proof that his sacrifice was sufficient to cover your sin. And not only that, but you also received a new life from God. You are not the old you if you are saved. You don't have to live that way anymore. He gave you a new life. You are new in Christ. Old things have passed away and all things have been made new. You've received the Holy Spirit that empowers you to live the life that you could never live before. We, we undermine the power of the Holy Spirit because we think we just can live this life in our own willpower. No, you got the Holy Spirit if you're saved. And the Holy Spirit is what gives us the strength, the, the, the power, the courage to live in lockstep in what God calls us to live in. He says, remember and keep it. Keep it. Live consistent with what you say you believe. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Access the means of grace, not to get something from. I'm not reading my Bible to get something from God, but I'm reading it because I enjoy God. He's saying renew your relationship with the Lord. But here's, here's the thing. We, if I just tell you, read your Bible and, uh, read your Bible and, and start praying. You'll do it, but you don't understand. It's not to do those things so you can get something from God. None of that will be enjoyable for us until we realize that God is the actual prize. What's killing your life and driving your discontentment and driving your dissatisfaction with where you are and driving your dissatisfaction with your career and driving your dissatisfaction with your finances and driving your dissatisfaction in your relationships and driving your dissatisfaction in your appearance and driving your dissatisfaction in where you thought you would have been in life at this age. You know what's driving that? A discontentment life, a discontent life that does not see God as the prize. God is not an appetizer to a bigger meal. God is the meal. God is the dessert. God ain't just a Brussels sprouts. He's the steak and potatoes. He's the cheesecake at cheesecake. Factory. <laughs> He's not something that gets you to something else. He's it. Once we get that, our discontentment will eventually dry up. And so if you're stuck, he says, remember, keep what you learn, and then he says, repent. Turn away from the life that you're living right now. I don't know how to put it more simple. I don't have a story to tell you. I don't have a, a grand analogy. Turn from that life of nominal Christianity because you are deceiving yourself that you're actually saved when you may not be. 
Repent, turn from that. God, God I, repent of, of, I repent of living this life trying to just make up my own Christianity when I'm actually living by, I say I'm living by grace, but I'm actually living by works because I think these works are going to save me in spite of how I actually live. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 3, 8. Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. The reality is, is that if we don't repent of nominal Christianity that we've been living and just doing the bare minimum and, and not prioritizing God and the kingdom of God and the people of God and serving God and, 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 and living into this faith that God has given us, he says, I, I'm, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. The people at Sardis would have known that because two times in their history, unsuspectedly, somebody came and took over Sardis and led him to destruction. And he said, you won't even know when it's happening. You'll just be lost. You ever been in the water at the beach? You ever noticed, I didn't walk out here this far. And if you're out far enough, panic sets in. You drifted and didn't even know it. And the same thing can happen to your spiritual life if we just keep doing nominal Christianity. He says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And that's not a veiled threat that Jesus is making because Jesus doesn't make veiled threats. He's saying not just about the second coming, I'm coming like a thief in the night, but I am going to come specifically to this church and tear up this congregation if you guys don't wake up. We got a good thing going here. But, it, but, but if there's one... One pastoral complaint I have, I just think some of us, most of us are just going through the motions. For most of us, we don't, we, I'm not just even talking about church on Sunday. I just think we just kind of use God as an add-on. We run hard to him when we get in trouble. But once trouble kind of subsides, we go back to nominal Christianity because we were just using God in the first place. We never say that, but this is what the story that our lives tell. But what he's calling to you, calling you to is a fruitful life with God, an enjoyable life with God where you prioritize him in every single area of your life. If not, he says, you got to repent because judgment is coming. So two things I just want to say. Number one, to those who are followers of Jesus, um, who are not followers, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I love you. And and I'm, oof, I'm so glad that you're here if you're an unbeliever. I never assume that everybody in here is saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. No, I don't assume that. There are unbelievers among us often in our church. And so I'm just saying this. Here's what you get out of this. Surrender because God's judgment is real and imminent. You will pay for your sins whether you believe it or not. You can't work it off. You can't do enough good works. That, that is a price and a debt that you cannot afford to pay with your life. You must trust in what Christ did for you on the cross by dying for your sins. And you must repent and trust in him. If you are a believer and you've made a profession of faith, you got to live into that decision that you made. None of the promises of God are going to come to those who don't endure. Rankin Wilborn says this, and I'm coming to a close. Here's what he says. He says this in his book, The Cross Before Me. I recommend you read this book, beautiful book. He says this, our lives are not our own. We must die to our plans and our sense of what makes for a successful life. We must die to our own vision of the good and beautiful life. We must die to our expectations of the life that we thought God was supposed to give us if we did the things that we thought God was asking us to do. We must die to our reputation and let the word of Christ be our reputation. We must die to our own immortality projects. We must die to getting our own way. We must die as a way of life. That is the cruciform way. The cruciform way is God's way to the good and beautiful life. It's so hard for us to believe Jesus' way is a way to life because it feels like death. But the paradox of the kingdom is that the way up is down. The good news is, he says, there's a few people in Sardis who have not capitulated to the culture. Who are in spite of all of the nominal Christianity around them, they've not defiled their clothes. 
they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I'll acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. He means this, that there are few people whose lifestyles has not betrayed their, betrayed their confession of faith. They've trusted that Jesus has freed them from sin, and they live in the reality that they are no longer slaves to sin. They have not defiled their clothes, and they walk with him in white. It just means that they put on the new life in Christ, and they put on the robe of righteousness that Jesus clothes us in when we get saved. And he's saying they are, they're worthy. It doesn't mean that they are perfect. It just means that they live a faithful, God-honoring life. They receive the free gift of salvation that caused Christ Christ's life on the cross so that they could have new life and they live consistent with that reality not by how much stuff they do but how they respond to all the pressure and temptation that comes their way and they still made a choice to do things God's way you may not believe it but there's still a remnant that does live for the glory of God he calls them conquerors he says I'll never erase their names from the book of life in Revelation, there's something called the Lamb's Book of Life, where there are names since the foundations of the world that have been put, written down in eternity, that God knew who he would save before the foundations of the world. When you get saved, God ain't like, oh, what? Your friends are surprised. God's not. He knew before you were born that you would belong to him. And he's saying, those who endure, their name will never be erased. They are secure. He calls them conquer, conquerors because here's how you conquer in the Christian life. You remain faithful to Christ in all circumstances. That's it. And he says, the one, later on he says, the one who conquers, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I con also conquered and sat down, my sat down with my father on his throne, that we will be seated with Christ, that we will rule the world in the new heavens and the earth, new earth with Christ Jesus. He says, well, we'll wear, we'll wear all white. And uh, that's just the purity aspect where our sins have been cleansed. You know, it's the summer and I never, I'm not cool enough. I've never been invited to one of these. They have these all white parties. I've never, been one, I've never been able to get me a, a, a white linen outfit. I'm just, nobody thought I was worthy to be invited to one of these parties. I was never one of the cool kids. Maybe you've been to one. Y'all look cool. You got good friends. And uh, recently, the 4th of July, this, this billionaire, his name's Michael Rubin. He was one time a part owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. I think he also owned, at one point, the New Jersey Flyers, a hockey team. But he owns this sports apparel company, I think called, it's called our sports licensing company called Fanatics. He's a billionaire. And he recently threw this all-white party. And man, when I tell you all kinds of celebrities, I mean, the top of the top was at this party. It, but it was invitation only. It was, it was thrown in the Hamptons. I mean, this thing was crazy. Let me, let me read off the list. You tell me if you, you wanted to go to this party. Because I think I might have wanted to go to this party. And I, I, don't, go, I don't care who's coming out. I'm not going. It could be in my front yard. I'm, I'm just not coming out of the house for the party. I don't, I don't really care. But, man, let me, let me read this list. Jay-Z was there. You know, you know your pastor going. <laughs> I don't care whatever. whatever. Y'all say whatever y'all want to say. Judge me later. Beyonce was there. Leonardo DiCaprio was there. J-Lo was there. Ben Affleck was there. Justin Bieber was there. No, a party ain't a party unless Biebs is there. <laughs> Kevin Hart was there. Kevin Durant was there. James Harden was there. I wouldn't win unless he promised to wash his beard before he came, because whatever. <laughs> DJ Khaled was there. I probably wouldn't have went, because I'm not going to party with a man walking around with his shirt off like, like that. I'm not doing that. Tom Brady was there. You know your party is lit when Tom Brady is there. Kim K was there. <laughs> Kendall Jenner was there. Guess who performed? Usher was there. Wouldn't have went with my wife, but Usher was there. <laughs> Causing too many problems out there today. Usher was there. He performed. 
Neo perform, and, and Travis Scott and Jack Harlow DJ the party. So, so it was invite only, the best of the best, the top of the top. But then I saw one famous sports person. He was in his feelings that he didn't get an invite. And he went to Twitter. Stephen A. Smith was like, yo, I thought, dude, I thought Michael Rubin, I thought you was my dog. I thought, we, I thought you was my boy. I, we, we worked together. What, what, you didn't, I didn't get an invite? His reputation didn't get him in. All right. His reputation didn't get him in. Because maybe the person who created the list didn't deem his works good enough. Because it wasn't about works in the first place. It's really about reputation. And I don't know if I would have invited Stephen A. He yells a lot. <laughs> but this all-white party that God is throwing, I'm afraid most of these people on this list won't be invited. Their rep won't get them in. But you know who will be invited? You and I. And it'll be far better than this party. Because you know what's crazy about this party? The people who got invited in 2020 and 2021, some of them people weren't invited in 2022 because they weren't hot anymore. The reason why we will be invited to this party in heaven is because it won't be on our reputation. It'll be on Christ's reputation. And if you want to have life in communion with God, at the best party that you've ever been to and life has never seen. You got to trust in the one who can get you there. And his name is Jesus. He's the host and he's the guest of honor. But we are invited in with him. So if you're here today and you've been trying to access things on your own, let me tell you, the most important place that you'll ever be, you can't get there on your own. Your works won't get you there. You can only get there on Christ's reputation. Today is an invitation for you to come into, the rep- come into relationship with the person who has the only reputation that matters. The one who is forever and eternally alive because he got out of the grave. He was raised to life. And he wants a relationship with you. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.